Hey, good people. It's Dr. G, host of TSOB with Dr. G. And I've got a question for you. Have you become a TSOB insider yet? I know you're probably like, what is that? But let me tell you, in addition to this podcast, we have got a bunch of wonderful things on the way. Special events, uh, partnerships, classes, lots of different things that are coming up that we want to provide to those who are really on the TSOB team. And the only way to get on that team is to join the listserv. So when you get a chance, head over to www.subscribepage.com slash TSOB. And when you do that, you will be in the know. We won't spam you, I promise, but you will be first to find out about different events, like I said, that we've got coming up, as well as special discount codes that will come for all the other uh, particular projects that we're doing. So again, www.subscribepage.com slash TSOB so you can become an insider and we will look forward to seeing you there. Now, let's start the show. Welcome to TSOB with Dr. G, a podcast featuring intellectual table talk about race and sexuality. I'm your host, Dr. Tracy Q. Gilbert, a sexuality educator, writer, and researcher. Join me as I talk with the most brilliant minds in human sexuality, applying a professional Black lens to discussions about sexiness, health, and healing in the new millennium. It's TSOB, the sex ed of Black folk. Let's get to the get down, shall we? Okay, so hello, hello. I am so excited to be having this conversation that is about to get started. I'm super excited to be talking to the person that um, I'm with with today. Um, Just an amazing person and all around. I I feel like the word, I hate using this word, but it's so appropriate. Um, All around badass. Like, I, I just feel like it's just, I hate using bad badass to talk about just the ways that black folks really just try to survive and thrive in this society. But I just feel like badass is so appropriate in this conversation. Um, one of the most intelligent people I know, um, I'm just going to read her bio and then we're going to get into it. I'm, I'm speaking of none other than Jennifer Driver, um, who is just again, a badass. So I'm going to really quickly read her bio. Jennifer Driver is an award-winning reproductive health, rights, and justice policy and advocacy leader. She is the founder of Take Root Strategies, LLC, which is a consulting firm that provides strategic guidance on reproductive health care policy. Prior to this, um, she served as the Vice President of Policy and Strategic Partnerships with SECUS, Sex Ed for Social Change. Um, And there is where she provided leadership to drive the organization's federal and state policy and advocacy efforts and to build cross-movement and intersectional, um, intersectional strategic partnerships and collaborations that advance sexual and reproductive freedom for all at the intersection of queer liberation, racial justice, and reproductive justice, which is a long way to say that she basically ran that organization and had it doing all these badass things for the world. Um, Prior to being at Seekers, Jennifer served as the manager of training and education for Welcoming America, where her work focused on the intersection of immigration, racism, education, health, and policy. 
Um, but she's also worked with Power to the Side and the Georgia Campaign for Adolescent Power and Potential. And what I really love about Jennifer is that utilizing public health and intersectional frameworks, she focuses much of her work on advocating for the health and well-being of young people, paying particular attention to youth of color, immigrants, youth in care, and LGBTQ communities as she shapes and advance public policy efforts. And so... Look, she's been she's been everywhere and she's done everything and all the things. So without further ado, welcome to TSOB Jennifer Driver. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, <laughs> you so much for having me. Yes. I'm so excited and looking Absolutely. forward to this. I, I am as well. Um, let's just start with just um I, I try to try to really kind of root and ground our converse my conversations in blackness. So I just really want to start with just having you share a about yourself, any other things like, you know, where are you from? Where are your people from? And what what's your thought? What are you thinking about as it relates to sex and sex ed these days? Sure. So um, I am, my people are from Alabama, Birmingham, Alabama. Hey. Um, born and, yes, born and raised. And then, um, you know, I read Isabel Wilkerson's um, Warmth of Other Suns. So I've been tracking where they um, do the, like the great migration of where they landed from leaving from Alabama. So we have people in California, Detroit. I'm currently in um, DC. Um, but I, I, anyways, I've really enjoyed really looking at how my family has, you know, moved and, and left from the South and gone to, to other places to find their warmth mm-hmm. and other suns. But what am I thinking about in policy right now or sex education right now? Obviously policy, because that was the first thing that came to my mind. You know, I think we're in a really unique opportunity in sex education where the field has been largely led by, by white folks, right? Um, have been the face of it. It doesn't mean that they are the ones that are doing the work. And it doesn't mean that they're the ones that really have been driving a lot of the work on the um, on sex ed, but they are the ones that get the visibility and the funding. And so what I think about sex education right now is um, I feel a shift going to happen. I hope that's, that's kind of a little bit of optimism um, on my part. Um, so a shift happening where more folks of color are boldly saying, oh no, um, y'all have been taking credit for our work for far too long and it stops now. And mm-hmm. I'm really optimistic that, you know, that continues to bubble up and funders see that as well. Um, I just see a lot of opportunity for sex ed right now. Awesome. 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 Yes. And so you have um, laid out a lot of the things that I really want to get into in more depth in more depth in a minute, but just to back it up a little bit, tell me a little bit about how you got not only into sex ed, but also into sex ed policy, because you're right. Like one of the reasons, um, and I've already intimated this to you, one of the reasons I wanted you on here to talk about policy is because you're one of the few black folks I know who are kind of leading the conversation, not even kind of, you're leading the conversation. And um, I just think that's remarkable because so many black folks in our field tend to be more practitioners and and that's important, but it's also important to think about policy too. So tell us a little bit about your story in terms of how you came to that part of the work. Sure, so like I said, I'm was i I'm from Alabama. We didn't, um, I didn't have sex education. I had um, a white man that told us about HIV from like a driver's ed or health book. Um, he was, he doubled as a driver's ed and health teacher. Um, but what I noticed as I kind of, kind of fell into this work um, 
I was doing a lot of programming. And to your point, that was where I was seeing a lot of people. That's where I was seeing um, people really putting their focus behind sex education. But what I also noticed is it wasn't um, long term, right? So you would go in, you would do six to eight weeks or however weeks along of a program, and then it would just be done. And, and in my mind, I was like, that can't be all there is. Like, that can't be where it stops. And so one of the school systems that I was working with, this is when I had moved to Atlanta, I was like, well, we don't have a policy on this. You know, you can come and do this, but you know, once it's done, we don't have a sex ed policy. And so I was saying, well, well, what do we need to do to get a sex ed policy? Because you're doing these programs and they, the kids are showing up and they're sitting here for that time period. And then it just goes away, right? So it's like, if you do math for a short period of time and then never have it again, how much of it do you actually retain? Um, and so I, I knew that there needed to be a long-term kind of institutionalizing, um, for lack of a better word, like there's something where we are continuously doing sex ed, you know, you get it in a grade, you get it in another. And I know that that's what comprehensive sex education is. However, very few folks at the time in 2008 had a policy on comp sex ed. Mm -hmm. So we were pushing sex ed, comp sex education, but nobody was talking about how you actually make it happen outside of a program they were they weren't doing the the kind of the policy aspects of it um and then um came the obama period uh, administration so i i'm not going to wonk out too much but the obama funding for sex education and we were getting all of this money into georgia and then once obama was to leave then it was just to go away like that didn't seem right mm -hmm. um and so I started to, you know, get in touch with the folks who were doing policy. I moved to DC. Um, that's why I got my district shirt on. Um, moved to DC and um, um, joined the, the national campaign, Now Power to the Side, and they had a whole policy arm and I was just blown away. I wanted to do that. But when I showed up to all of the meetings, I was the only black person, black woman, sitting around the table talking about sex ed. And those folks weren't talking about sex ed the way that I knew it right? They had never been in the community. They came from their, they went to the law schools and then came into policy, but never had actually been in community to, to do sex education. Anyways, I'll wrap this up. But what I, what I noticed is the people who were making the policies didn't look like the communities that I was coming from, didn't look like um, the facilitators that were delivering the programs. They didn't even know the programs. They were putting in policies that weren't going to really um, have a lasting effect um, or would have detrimental um, impacts on black and brown folks in communities. Um, and so that's really what drove me and I continued to stay. I really stayed when there was this white man who sat around the table and he is still leading some of the sex ed work, but he compared the Congressional Black Caucus to bottom feeders and scavengers. Now I'm sitting here, I'm in the room. So if you say this to me four feet away, what do you say when I'm not in the room? Mm -hmm. And people are listening to your, your language as they shape policy, as it relates to sex education. And that for me was not okay. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, so your presence is so important and your voice is so important. When you think about your presence in those spaces and you kind of think about um, the role that you feel like you serve, what would you say your your superpower would be, if you will, in those conversations or, and just in the work that you do? 
I think a superpower would be the fact that I have both delivered sex education, I have both evaluated sex education programs, and now I do the policy. So I, mm -hmm. I'm coming with a bunch of different lenses to how I um, approach the work that I do. Mm -hmm. um, whether that was by my choice to do all of those things or not, I still think it's a superpower to have because very few folks who are doing policy have had all of those positions. And I think it makes me a stronger person, um, policy person to have done it. Um, and so I, I wear that um, cape very proudly. Um, I, I think that that's probably my superpower. Yes, I love it oh, too. Oh, oh, and I want to add to, I get really excited about policy and I hope that my other superpower is that when I talk about policy, other people are like, ooh, tell me more about policy. And that's yeah. something because I want to see more folks of color, um, black women doing policy, at, at least at the sex ed space, in the sex ed yeah. space. Yeah, and I appreciate you saying that, and I think I think you are definitely fulfilling that in terms of getting people excited about policy. Because um, as someone who came into it as a practitioner, I think it is so easy to just kind of focus on who cares about that. I just need to, you know, think about the young folks that I'm serving and making sure they get the information that I'm creating and that they, you know, that they enjoy what we're doing. And and I think it's very easy to have tunnel vision about that until. Um, you have to think about, well, how do we fund this and how do we keep it going? And who are the who are the folks that are uh, giving out or holding back resources um, on, for exactly these things? Right. right? And, and recognizing like, oh, there is this other arm. And so, I'm you know, I'm very clearly biased against the conversation. But I know I'm like, well, if somebody else knows what we need to do, it's going to be Jennifer and Jennifer's <laughs> going to tell us how to get together. So I do value. I do recognize that that is um, important. So I, I want to go there then to ask you, what are some of the things that you feel like Black people in particular, um, but you know, all marginalized folks, but particularly Black folks kind of miss when it comes to thinking about policy and thinking about um, maybe even policy in general, but especially with regard to sex ed? What do you think are some of the spots that we're not necessarily privy to that we need to pay more attention to? So I think that, that that question is really interesting because the way that you framed it, because you said policy in general and then in sex ed. And I mm -hmm. think what drives our, um, or steers us a little bit away of policy in sex ed is because we've been so frustrated with the general policy overall, right? Mm -hmm. um, you either feel let down, mm -hmm. you feel, um, you, you still have struggled with whether or not our voice actually is accounted. And like, if we, we're putting these people in office and you still don't do what we want you to do. So like, why am I bothering with that? Mm -hmm. And I think that that in itself has an impact on the way that we look at sex education policy, right? The same thing, like, why do I need to focus on sex ed policy when I can just go do a curriculum for the folks in my community, um, that really need it. And so that that's one thing. What I want people to know or to think about is how that is getting funded. Because while you are doing your program in your community wonderful, what is happening is Black folks or Black young people are more likely to get an abstinence-only program in their community. And that is largely largely driven by policy. It is largely driven by who's getting the funding and the type of pol the type of funding that is being allocated both at the state and federal level. And that shapes the type of programs that you're going to be able to go in and do in whether it's community or in school. We know young people spend the majority of their day in a school-based setting. And so if that school is promoting 
um, white supremacy in their sex education. If that school is doing an abstinence only program, that is largely due to policy. And so if you really want to change the type of information that black folks, folks of color, marginalized folks are getting, you really have to look at the policies that are put into place mm-hmm. um, in order to see a, a significant change. Yeah, yeah. I think that's such an important point. I know I hear um, people, especially adults, kind of reflecting on their experience as children and kind of thinking about what they didn't get and very often missing the connection between policy and that, right? Just kind of thinking, oh, well, you know, it's because they didn't want to do it or, you know, there wasn't anyone qualified without knowing that like, no, there's folks who who could do this work, who could be funneling it in, but they are dealing with these blocks that are way bigger, right? And, and, and people thinking about, oh, well, you know, when I got sex ed, all I got was this and all I got was that. And it's like, well, yes, yeah, some of it is the individual teacher, but very often it is because they are limited by, by the it's- structural. Is that also, like, I think we often, so immediately when I was thinking about this, you know, I go to the federal level, but if you just zone down, even at the very micro level, the school boards, right? How many of us actually show up for school board meetings? I don't have children, but how many do we show up for the school board meetings, even in the communities that we live in, just to advocate for those kids in that community for a stronger sex? That's policy, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think that that is really critical. And the reason why you don't have more or stronger sex ed programs is that a lot of school board members are like, I don't want to have to deal with that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they don't touch it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's when we um, show up at these school board meetings and say, hold on, no, no, no. We have black students in this, in this school district. Here's what they need to be getting. And you're going to elected official, make sure that these young people get the best high quality programming. Um, that we can give them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, and that comes with a privilege piece too, though. I'm I'm gonna acknowledge that. Yeah. Can you? Would you mind leaning more into that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, policy in itself also comes with a privilege piece. So, I had gone to uh, a school board me- um, meeting in St. Louis, or I was testifying or something um, at a policy hearing in St. Louis. And I was supposed to speak um, and advocate for why the the district needed comprehensive sex education. I was supposed to speak at four o'clock in the afternoon. I didn't speak until eight o'clock that night, mm. which meant I had the ability to stay from four to eight. How many people actually have that? And that's what they're counting on though. That is exactly what they're counting on, that people will leave, get tired, frustrated and go away. And then they don't have to discuss it anymore. Mm-hmm. I got time. So I sat <laughs> right. there for the four hours and waited for um, until eight o'clock. And so, there is some privilege that I am a, have the ability to do that. I don't have kids that have to go home and take um, take care of or feed or like the other things that um, that I have to do. And so, the, the, but that's that's the way they make policy inaccessible and they make this much harder than it needs to be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, so it sounds like there's some opportunity there to be thinking about how can um, folks maybe even be creative about how we advocate for various things, right? Like I'm thinking- Well, they didn't. Yeah, go ahead. No, well, I was just thinking about um, the '60s and how, like, people, you know, were creative. They they organized children and they organized. And I'm not trying. That's to, exactly you know, right. No, you're right. No, you're but, right. Yeah, and thinking about okay, then so what then becomes the need in terms of being able to advance this policy, these sorts of things. They did not um, count on what happened with COVID, though. So now that COVID is virtually, you know, it's virtual. You know, it, it made all of these little um, these meetings virtual, right? Mm-hmm. 
And so I can leave my computer up all day, you know? <laughs> I can cook, take care of my kids, and then come, hey, I'm back. Right. Like, just um, so you're aware. And so, yes. And so they, that part, they were like, oh, wait. Mm-hmm. Now how do we make it more, in a, yeah, mm-hmm. more challenging? Mm-hmm. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's such an important point. I think um, COVID has done at least I've seen it in the in the programming level. I think it's just really it's I mean, it's come with its challenges, obviously, but I think it is really allowed people who are now at home to be able to be more active in what is going on in their That's exactly right. In, in their surroundings. So it's like, yeah, even if I have to work over here on the side, I got this screen up, I'm here for this Zoom meeting, I'm going to get this information. So I, yeah, I can definitely see that as another opportunity. Um, so I am gonna in a second have you share with folks kind of your best practices or thoughts for how they can be more of an advocate and be more involved. But tell me more about Take Root Strategies. So so I know this is a fairly new initiative for you, but I'm, I'm very excited to hear about it. Let folks know what what is that and how you help people do this work. Yeah, thank you so much for asking. Take root strategies. And I, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't say that Dr. Tracy Gilbert gave me the kick that I needed to get out there and do it. Um, and so I, I, I say that to everyone um, when I talk about take root. But what I really um, thought about and in, in kind of shaping take root was like where policy takes hold um, and like what you what is needed for um, life to be, you know, to continue, right? You, you water the roots. I'm gonna get better at articulating um, what that analogy, uh, <laughs> but I, I really I really like that take, um, that policy really kind of grounds us um, and, and very similar to kind of how the root grounds um, a tree or the flower. And so that was kind of what I was, what I was thinking there. But what I do, I work anything, I, so, it was not just sex ed, which um, has been really surprising to me. I've been doing um, kind of environmental justice work. Mm-hmm. So if I think about kind of take root, it's it's more kind of a repro frame because reproductive justice frame and that we're looking at environmental justice um, as it relates to health. Um, and also the environmental field is really white. You think sex ed is white? (laughs) That environmental feel is really white. Um, And so I've been doing a lot of kind of racial justice um, coalition building and, and, and training and education around those, those, um, the white folks in um, the, the environmental space. They're looking primarily in um, Pennsylvania. So I I think a lot about kind of the Braddock, the Braddock area, um, right outside of um, Pittsburgh and New Jersey and, and, and how um, race, um, and the environment really go hand in hand mm-hmm. as it relates to health. Um, I've been looking at um, the criminal justice, been working in the criminal justice f- space um, with the National HIV LGBTQ um, National Working Group mm-hmm. that is really centering formerly incarcerated folks um, and and how we improve policies um, that remove barriers for them as they navigate through society. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, here are my roots in sex education, really looking at how young people have access to condoms and contraception uh, and schools. Um, and so we're working with um, legislators in Michigan to figure out how we can um, improve cond- condom access um, and um, accessibility within um, Michigan school systems. Yeah. Uh, and so I work with um, nonprofits, I work with coalitions, I work with legislators, on um, health policy, really looking very broadly. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. You just reminded me, right? Like we, I spent a lot of time at kind of having you think about or having you talk about policy with regard to sex ed, but there's really so many other topics in health, but also in sexual health that directly are related to policy, right? I'm thinking about, um, you just mentioned uh, incarcerated folks and, and folks living with HIV, um, thinking of LGBTQ folks, but I'm also, I know you have some experience working with abortion policy, abortion, right? Abortion, immigration. Organizing all, around yeah. that. That's exactly yeah. Right. Can you t share a little bit about your thoughts on what's happening with that too, particularly with kind of the shift that's happened with our Supreme Court and what folks might um, maybe need to think about with regard to that, and in, in, even in the years ahead. Yeah. So, um, you know, we paid a lot of attention to the Supreme Court this um, this past November or this year as um, the occupant of the White House was starting was putting <laughs> in more justices um, at the Supreme Court. And so, you know, that was done very strategically because they knew that there would be um, bans popping up at the state legislature that would see their way to the Supreme Court and eventually lead to overturning the Roe v. Wade um, statue. And so what's really interesting about this, though, um, as it relates also to this conversation, is there is a clear line around abortion policies and sex education policies. And very rarely do people make that connection. Mm -hmm. um, the same people who are doing those banning of abortion policies are the same ones who are stopping um, sex education policies in schools. Mm -hmm. And so um, they know which angle. The same, they're the same folks that are doing the anti-LGBTQ policies in these states and, and districts um, and at the federal level. Mm -hmm. And don't, don't I one thing that I, I don't want anyone to leave, this is not a Republican Democrat thing. We have a Democratic um, representative of Tulsi Gabbard who ran under the Democratic Party, who just introduced one of the most anti-trans bills. Um, that we've seen from coming from the Democratic Party. And so we look Republican, Democrat, a lot at the federal level. It doesn't matter at the state level. Democrats right. will introduce some anti-information um, just as much as a Republican will. So mm -hmm. um, if you heard nothing else from me there, make sure that we're looking at who's um, introducing these pieces of bills and legislation and we vote them out. Yeah. But I, I, well, I, what I'll say is that... Um, I am concerned moving forward for sex education policy, LGBTQ policy and abortion policy in 2021, because I saw the shift of um, state legislatures and the houses and the chambers that may have shifted or, or grew on the anti side and how our Supreme Court is currently laid out mm -hmm. that when these um, issues go up to the Supreme Court, um, we have more conservative justices, which then um, it's concerning to see if they will take them up and um, move us, shift us in a more conservative direction. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think this is important. I, I recognize there may even be some folks who are listening who may think, well, listen, that ain't got nothing to do with me. You know, I don't need an abortion. I feel like folks shouldn't be doing and blah, blah, blah anyway. And also recognizing that this still has grave implications for our community. It's not just abortion. Yeah. It's the government saying who is worthy of a comprehensive health care because you are in poverty, because you have low income, because you may be on Medicaid. It may not even be that you may be working for the federal government and do not realize that the federal you cannot get certain health care 
services because you have their insurance. Mm. And so it's them dictating the type of insurance or the type of services, excuse me, that you can receive based on what they say is acceptable. Mm. Um, so Medicaid, it is because you um, are low income, whatever, that you have Medicaid, they are saying you are not worthy of making the decision for your for your body. Mm -hmm. And it is a controlling of folks um, who have access, who need Medicaid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ooh, okay. So, so then let's say you have that person who's like, look, this all sounds really fucked, right? This all sounds like, it sounds like everybody's <laughs> bad. You just said it yourself that it's not Democratic or Republican because they can both be anti-Black. They can both be trash. Oh, yes. Trash. What What do you say to that person to, to help them see the bigger topic like how would you respond to that person i mean they're counting on you to to say that and to step back away right they are counting on you to get frustrated in the process they are count they are making all of these barriers so that people either don't understand or they get frustrated and they don't want to deal with it and mm -hmm. so they're they know that they can continue to do it right that's what they're counting on yeah so what i would say is let's learn the process we can do it together and like do it incrementally. No one is, you know, if you want to start at a school district or a school board or like one tiny little issue, um, it could be nutrition pro, like whatever excites you start there mm -hmm. um, and learn the process there and then expand to other things. Yes. But they are counting on us to, um, to be like, eh, you know, it, it doesn't work. The system fails me. Yeah. And so they're allowed to, they keep getting elected mm -hmm. because of that. Mm -hmm. And and that led leads perfectly into my my almost uh well no we're gonna keep going but that leads wait me to can I just say one thing oh, yeah, I, sure I said they keep getting elected because of that they get elected because of that and dis, um voter disenfranchised you know so that's not the only reason they get elected but they are counting on people getting frustrated in the process or um turning away you can see what happened in Georgia right so now that um black folks um indigenous folks aapi communities turned out in georgia and georgia went blue you can look in the current election of um ossoff and raphael warnock that they are trying to make it even harder now for those groups to vote um mm -hmm. because they showed up mm -hmm. so you know they put these barriers in place we jumped over them um, mm -hmm. And now they're going to try to put more barriers in place. So they're counting on us to do to get frustrated or not turn out. Right. And that's that's why. And so yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That's, I, I did want to acknowledge that it's not just because we lost interest. They also have made it harder. for yeah. us. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. Thank you for, for raising that, because I'm sure there are other folks who kind of think about that, too. And and. Um, what I appreciate about folks like you is that, and you know me, so, you know, my, my motto is, you know, let's just fight. We can fight. But I get like, OK. This is, we can't just beat up everybody. Um, and so we have to move into Can't we? <laughs> as much as we may want, you know, maybe, <laughs> and maybe in certain situations, but it, uh, we can beat up people, but we wouldn't necessarily be able to uh, have what we want at the end of the day. So I get that. There's more. We can fight, but there has to be more. Um, and so, so on the other end, let's, for the folks who are like, okay, Jen, I get you. I hear you. I know this is important, but I don't know anything about this. I just know that, you know, my baby is not getting what they need in their classroom, in their sex ed classroom, or, you know, um, my, my young people are struggling with getting abortion access or my, you know, my, my, you know, my kids are, are, my kid is trans and they can't get the resources that they need. 
where do you suggest people start and how do they get in? That's a really good question. Um, so I think that there's this idea that you have to take it on all by yourself and that's not the case, right? So I, the abortion access, I would look to your local abortion fund who is in your state or your community and figure out how you can work with them so that you're not shouldering all of this on your own. If it is a trans LGBTQ um, rights, there are organizations in your community that are, that are working on that as well so that you don't have to do it alone. But the other thing is if you have the ability to show up to a meeting, to write a letter to the school board. Like these are really small things that you can do. I've seen even, and um, when I lived in Atlanta, I, I did attend Raphael Warnock's church. You know, I would have them do, have folks in the church just writing letters to the, um, the districts that they were, that they were um, where they lived. And that was a, a step that they can do. I also want people to be realistic. Like the change is not going to happen overnight, right? And so where you are starting is just laying the foundation for something to come in the future. It may not change with your child, which is really frustrating and um, really hard to hear, but you are changing something for the future. Now, if you want to demand change for your child in this moment, I would say show up to the, the school. I would, you know, that's where kind of the increase needs to happen. And you mobilize and you bring three friends and they need to bring three friends and, you know, and it grows um, so that there is power in, in, in movement. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Awesome. So my last formal question, my last formal question is how do you see your place um, in this particular moment in our society, right? Thinking larger in terms of all the changes that have been happening in this season. What do you, how, how do you see your role as a black sex ed person um, in, in our present society and even in the field, if you want to talk about that. Yeah. I mean, my role has, has kind of shifted in a couple of different ways, but I still see it as, um, bringing more people into policy and doing the policy, um, educating those folks as it relates to policy. Like when I talk to you and I'm like, Hey, Tracy, did you know this, this is, is happening? Um, and you're like, Oh, I didn't really know that that policy was. Happening. Yes, girl, this is what happened. And so being able to be <laughs> kind of that, that intermediary between like what's happening, um, whether it's at the local level on up to folks and like bringing them along, but also being the loudest voice in the fight, I think is really, um, a role that I have embraced and take on. And, reminding the white people around the table that your days where it just looks like white people around this table are up, right? I will, mm -hmm. you know, we will make a new table, we will bring some chairs and we will then see about inviting you to this table. Mm -hmm. And I think- We gonna flip this table. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I Tanya Bass had a really great um, thing on, Facebook that I saw yesterday or one of the days about, I'm, I'm tired of bringing my chair up, squeezing in between people and trying to make my, have them see why I deserve to be at that table. No, I will have this table, bring Dr. Tracy Gilbert, bring all of the folks that have been doing this work for a very long time. And then maybe if I choose to invite some white folks that you know are co-conspirators to the table, I will bring them along with me. But the thing about it is what I'm finding is representatives are looking at our tables now, mm -hmm. right? In a way that they hadn't been um, in the past because they can they see our value, they see our power. Um, and my 
my role is to continue to make them see that mm -hmm. um, as we move forward. Amazing. Amazing. And I and I don't say that lightly because, um, you know, full transparency to folks listening. I'm not always excited at, uh, about politics, about policy, about any of this. Like I am often not. And so um, I, I am grateful for folks like you, Jen, who helped me at least recognize like, OK, maybe there's a glimmer of hope somewhere that I can kind of lean into and just hang on to. Because <laughs> sometimes I'm like, burn it off. Forget it. We'll start over. <laughs> I mean, I, I have those days. I mean, I want to burn it down, too. Um, but in, until we burn it down, here's where I'm sitting. Here's where we're sitting. I get it. I get it. Absolutely. All right. So we have done, what, what did you say? The wonk, the, the policy wonk, the yes. political wonking. Um, now we're going to have a little fun with my rapid fire questions that I have for all guests and, rec you know, recognizing me, I'm someone who thinks a lot about blackness and sexuality and sexiness. So these are just a few questions that I want you to just First thing comes to your mind. Okay. Ready? Okay. So, sexiness is. Oh, okay. Okay. Wait. Sexiness is. I'm going to do an. I had, the first thing that came to my mind was like smarts, like mental stuff. And that's that's kind of nerdy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, but that's okay. I, that's totally cool. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. I was like, research. Absolutely. <laughs> Oh, yes, I'm, I love I'm, it. I really am, y'all. I'm better. Like, That's give me another question. Let me, Let me tell you one. why, because you're going to be one of the few people to to say that, and there's going to be somebody listening who's like, "Yeah, uh, uh huh, I love that too." Like intelligence <laughs> is sexy. It yes. is. It really, really is. Yes, absolutely. Okay, the sexiest thing about blackness and or black people is oh, community, hands down. Our ability to be in community. I just. Um, turns me on in ways that I, I yeah, I love it. I love it. Hey, <laughs> okay, my go-to for feeling sexy is. Ooh, Marvin Gaye actually actually just came to, to mind. Come on, mind. <laughs> I thought you were gonna say a research. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Like Marvin Gaye was the first thing that popped. Out. I was like, yeah, that is it. <laughs> Absolutely, love it, love it, love it. Sexual freedom for Black folk is achieved when. Oh wow. Um. Dang, Tracy, that one, that one's good. And what comes sexual freedom for both achieved when, I think it's when, when all of us just kind of lean into our full ability to be sexual beings, mm -hmm. um, even from a, you know, from a very young age to my 95 year old grandmother. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, and that that is the the message that we are um, sending to both um, our young and our old. Um, I remember being really sexually repressed just through the church and everything, and just like not being able to do anything, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that there is power when we can lean into our um, our ability to um, our ability to just be like sexual beings and and appreciate that. Yeah. And I think that that's I think that that's when we start to achieve it. Awesome. Last question or okay. last sentence stem. Okay. When I'm done being on this podcast, I will. Um, turn on um, college game day. Uh, <laughs> I am a diehard college football fan. And because I am still a policy wonk, 
I uh, will have on some sort of NPR podcast or something going on to catch me up on the latest that is happening um, in policy. And I will fix me a whiskey. I know it is 10 o'clock in the morning. I don't give a <laughs> it damn. It is five o'clock somewhere. It is. I will <laughs> pour a glass of bourbon and just chill because I have been having the most amazing time this morning. This is This has been really fun. Awesome. Um, yes, it has. Thank you so much for being on with me, Jen. I'll definitely have to have you back. Um, and yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you all for listening to this policy parts. <laughs> <laughs> You've been listening to TSOB with Dr. G, produced by Dr. Tracy Q. Gilbert of Tembi and I. To keep up with all things TSOB, Follow us on social media at TSOB The Podcast, which you can find on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. For past episodes of the show, visit TSOBpodcast.com or subscribe to the show either on YouTube or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Now, don't forget that you've got homework for this episode. To find the downloadable worksheet for this or any other episode of the show, head on over again to tsobpodcast.com where you'll find it and any other important information from the show notes. And finally, do you have any questions or thoughts to share? Sound off by email at mailbox at tsobpodcast.com. Again, this was TSOB, the sex ed of black folk. Thank you for listening. Talk again soon.